Doctor Who Enemy Aliens, performed by India Fisher with Michael Maloney as Hilary Hammond. Early of an evening towards the less distinguished end of 1935, the alien Time Lord known as the Doctor bounded back inside his time-traversing TARDIS, more than usually full of himself. Well, why ever not, thought his fellow adventurer Charlotte Pollard, following his velveteen coattails behind. They had, after all, only recently concluded a particularly unlikely escapade in the streets of London's Bloomsbury battling an army of granite behemoths brought into being by a balmy sculptor named Hamish Dorian Ernst. In the circumstances, a certain sense of self-satisfaction could be easily excused. But whereas victory had given the Doctor a second wind, excitedly reviewing highlights of the previous 48 hours in a stream of consciousness splurge, the Fabergé egg bomb, the living painting, tea with Vita Sackville West, Charlotte, known as Charlie, wanted only to flump in an armchair and kick off the boots of the Russian cavalry officer's uniform she appeared to have ended up wearing. Doctor, I'm pooped, done in, jiggered, all puffed out, and I absolutely refuse to be dragged off on another jaunt for at least a couple of hours. But as she prepared to flump, the doctor froze at the edge of the six-sided mahoganyed altar that formed the control room's centerpiece. No, he exclaimed. Oh, no, 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 he continued, elaborating on his theme with a further flurry of no's. Good. But no sooner had the upholstery welcomed her weight than the doctor had darted over, spinning the chair around to face the controls. Look at that, he howled, pointing in the direction of one particular button, which was pulsing an angry red. Just look at it! It's a button, Doctor. One of many hundreds of buttons on the TARDIS console, and not even an important-looking one. That's not a button, Charlie. That is an outrage, he insisted. An affront to my dignity. <laughs> That's a bit much, isn't it? I'll say it is, glowered the Doctor. That, that is a message on the TARDIS's internal communication system. A message? From whom? They travelled alone in the ship, to the best of her knowledge. Well, apart from the bats, but they left their messages encrusted in the rafters of the TARDIS's less visited rooms. There's only one person it could be, sighed the Doctor. Some reckless idiot who's got themselves in a jam. Some superior bossy boots in a fix. Some willfully obscure enigma hoping to intrigue me into getting them out of a tight spot. In short, me. One of your other selves, you mean? She wasn't entirely clear about this whole reincarnation business, but she knew it went on. Well, hadn't you better read it? Listen to it, corrected the doctor. Yes, but only under protest. I should be able to stand on my own two feet. Well, now I've heard your protest, and clearly you are still standing on your own two feet, although quite how after the weekend we've had is beyond me, so... Very well, sighed the doctor. He dashed back to the console and pushed the button. A hidden speaker popped loudly, then fuzzed for a moment, before a grandstanding voice declared cheerily, Hello there, Doctor. This is the Doctor speaking. Told you, the doctor told Charlie. Told you that too, the doctor told Charlie. I can't go into too much detail, because any second now... There came another loud pop, a fizz of fuzz, then a sudden silence. Any second now what? The doctor held a finger to his lips as the speaker whined and popped for what seemed like an age before the other doctor's voice surfaced once more and exclaimed unexpectedly, William Tell! William Tell? Anything else? muttered the doctor impatiently. Good luck. I'll watch out for those enemy aliens. 
A click, and the speaker fell silent. That's... that's it! Did something happen, do you think, to cut you off like that? The doctor flicked a button beside the first, causing a miniature cassette to be catapulted from the mouth of a now-empty slot. Tape ran out, that's all. I really should learn to be more succinct. But what about the bit in the middle? You know, with all the important stuff. That's easy, said the Time Lord. Either my future self has taken to dropping into the clicks and whistles of conversational Fermazi, or... And here he took off on a quick circuit of the console, his fingers playing levers and buttons like a concert pianist with the keys of a baby grand. Or my message was subject to interference, caused by some sort of localised etheric disturbance. Yes! The doctor jabbed a finger in the direction of the monitor above, which showed an oddly shaped oscilloscope trace. And there it is, he said accusingly. Mount Everest upside down? Fuzz, Charlie, fuzz! A cloud of etheric fuzz hanging over the entire bowl of London now, in 1935, like an electronic fog. Well, what's causing it? I don't know, admitted the doctor. It's blocking the TARDIS's sensors. Well, that's helpful. So what do we do now? Take a trip to 14th century Switzerland and stand around with apples on our heads in the hope that a man with a crossbow turns up to point us in the direction of some enemy aliens? Don't be absurd, scowled the doctor. For one thing, I've already met Herr Wilhelm Tell. He paused for effect, but Charlie didn't seem in the least bit impressed. Punishing her by admitting the fact that it had been his apple, he carried on. And for another, the other doctor's message was targeted at this TARDIS, at this precise space-time location. You mean there's another blasted lot of aliens up to no good in London now? It'd explain the etheric fuzz, certainly. And somehow William Tell is the key? Apparently, nodded the doctor. You might want to put those boots back on, he added. And so, in short order, Charlie once again found herself pounding the pavements of 1930s London in pursuit of the Doctor, who bounded ahead, a bleeping watsit of some description in his hand. Well, she called it a watsit. It was some device to help him pinpoint the source of the etheric fuzz, but she'd long ago adopted a naming system of her own devising. A thingamy was a tool, one hit someone else with a doodah, and a watsit bleeped. One could always combine them, of course. Thingamy Doodah would suit a space spanner, for example. Once, for variety, she tried out Ujimaflip, but she'd found it rather common. Besides, her system needed no improvement. The doctor skidded to a halt in a quiet square somewhere around the back of Piccadilly, cursing in fluent Fomazi. No joy with your what's it? The eight plucked eyebrows of the four pretty young men lined up against the railing opposite, as they were every night, raised as one. If by what's it you're referring to my wave disturbance locator, Miss Pollard, the doctor only ever called Charlie Miss Pollard when she'd poured water on his fire, then no, it's being affected by the same disruption we experienced in the TARDIS. Then we're dashing around the back end of the West End like blue-bottomed blue bottles because... Blind optimism, he explained. I was hoping to find some sort of gap in the fog, but whatever's causing it so vast, so overwhelmingly huge, it can have no natural explanation. Enemy aliens? Undoubtedly, replied the doctor. William Tell, he muttered, beginning to pace a circle. William Tell, William Tell, William Tell. Da-da-dum, 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 dum-dum. Please, Miss Pollard, I'm thinking, said the doctor, flapping an irritated palm. So am I. Sang the boys on the railing, concluding with a flourish. Of course, exclaimed the doctor. Rossini! Rossini's William Tell Overture! Charlie, that's brilliant! He lunged forward, making to kiss her full on the lips, but she dodged him at the last moment. She knew he meant nothing by it, which was what bothered her rather. I know, 
someone playing Rossini. Yes, that might be it, elaborated the doctor. Someone's always playing Rossini. He's a hugely popular component of the light orchestral repertoire. We need to check concert houses, nightclubs, jazz venues, anywhere someone might be playing Rossini. His eyes glinted. Let's make like blue-bottomed blue bottles, shall we? Helpless to resist, Charlie picked up her cavalry officer's heels and followed the doctor as he galloped off into the West End night. One of the boys on the railing, cheered by the doctor and Charlie's temporary presence, began to whistle the overture. The others joined in, humming and badumming to cheer up an otherwise slow evening. Within minutes, two of them would be dead, their bodies ripped apart by an unknown assailant. The third survived his fearful injuries, only to spend the rest of his days in any number of lunatic asylums, humming Rossini and laughing. The last ran to Harwich, stowed himself aboard a ferry to the continent and was never seen again. To Charlie's delight, the doctor led the pair of them ever closer to the sodium electric signs of the busy circus. As they passed by crowds of nearly bright young things giggling excitedly, as taxis and trolleybuses thundered by, and oriental types loomed out of the dark, promising a splendid meal at Uncle Ho's, this way please. It seemed as though her evening had picked up rather. Charlie, snapped the doctor, who stopped short on the street. Suddenly aware that she'd been humming the overture for the last five minutes, Charlie blushed. Gosh, didn't realize I was doing it. The thing is, once it's got inside your head, it's hard to get it out. Not that, said the doctor. Look! He nodded his head towards a small building decked out in cheap gold livery. Trump's variety, it read above the double doors. Doctor, I hardly think that the work of Signor Rossini belongs in the music hall. I mean, I hate to sound like a frightful snob, but still. The bill, Miss Pollard, the bill, he said testily, leading her over to the board on which was displayed the night's particular entertainments. There, under Randy and Dandy, patterers and splatterers, under Conrad Seath and his dogs, under Lorna Lee, the Lark of Lewisham, under six-gun Sadie and her Wild West troop, still rootin' and tootin' after sixty long years, under even the Mottingham midgets, there was Mr. William Tell. Europe's most memorable memory man, read the doctor. Ask him anything, he'll give you the answer. What do you think? Shall we put him to the test? Conrad Seath's tap-dancing dogs were staggering woozily towards the end of their routine as the doctor and Charlie took the only seats they could find in the cramped auditorium. Second row seats vacated during the interval, its disgruntled former occupants having fallen victim to collateral splatter from Randy and Dandy's custard pies. Doubtless, Herr Seath's methods were terribly cruel, but Charlie told the doctor to clap all the same, for fear of drawing attention to themselves. But we're here to draw attention to ourselves, he replied loudly. Charlie shrank back into her seat as the curtains came together. Truly, she couldn't take him anywhere. A fat, cross-looking compere in a fat, crisscrossed suit strode out onto the boards. A thin, pinched-faced fellow in a tightly pinched dinner jacket shuffled on behind. Motioning the audience to calm themselves down, the fat man began to project. Ladies and gentlemen, he announced, I have the honour of presenting to you one of the most remarkable men in the world, Mr William Tell. The thin man looked out at the audience awkwardly, a little embarrassed, Charlie thought. Every day he commits to memory 50 new facts and remembers each and every one of them. Facts from history, from geography, from scientific texts. Try him, you'll see. Arms shot up all around the auditorium. Me meing, Mr Tell. But once the more tiresome wags had enjoyed their moment's attention, inquiring after what their old man really got up to with that Sally Pickles after closing time last Friday night, or Mae West's vital statistics... 
38-27-38, declared Mr Tell, mopping his brow with a handkerchief. The excitement cooled. In fact, as Mr Tell began to elaborate on a lengthy list of Football League Division 2 results for the 1896-7 season, Loughborough Town won 11, drew 6, lost 13, Burton Swifts won 6, drew 9, lost 15, Charlie sensed the crowd growing decidedly restive. Is this really entertainment? You tell me, Charlie, he replied. The people of your era don't have Wikipedia. That's why they don't know he's wrong. What's Wikipedia? Too late. The doctor had already stood up in his seat and was making his way towards the edge of the stage. Stop! Stop! he insisted, and eager to see the monotony broken, the crowd gave him hush. Mr Memory Man, he called out. I put it to you, sir, that you are incorrect. In the season ending 1897, Loughborough Town in fact won 12, drew only one, but lost 17. Burton Swifts, meanwhile, won nine, drew six and lost half their total games. How do you know? came a heckle from above. Did you have a season ticket? Well, yes, obviously, replied the doctor, cutting the guffaws dead. He continued to press the wretched-looking tell, whose handkerchief, Charlie noticed, was now dripping. Mr Memory Man, perhaps you'd care to prove to me and the rest of these people present that you are not, as I presume, some kind of charlatan. This drew gasps. By informing me, as I'm led to believe that you can, of the whereabouts of the aliens. Uh, aliens? stammered Tell. Yes, the enemy aliens. Don't tell me that you don't know, for I have it on the very best authority that you, Mr Tell, are the key to their location. The doctor leapt over the orchestra pit to land beside the by now fearfully perspiring turn. Tell me, Tell. The key, began Tell falteringly. The secret key to the hidden lock? The secret key? That sounds promising, said the doctor. Where's the key, Tell? The witch, moaned Tell. The key's in the house of the straggly witch. That's where the aliens are. Something flashed past the corner of Charlie's right eye, and when she looked back at the stage, Tell was staring sightlessly down at the red stain spreading across the front of his dress shirt. There was absolute, total silence in the auditorium, as she and the rest of the audience tried to work out what had happened. But then Tell's dead legs gave way. He toppled forward into the pit, and pandemonium broke out. Wait, wait, the doctor's a doctor! Then something hard and heavy came shooting out from beneath the stalls behind, striking her foot. Ow! She bent down to pick the object up and found herself holding a still warm, still smoking pistol. Doctor! Doctor, look! For a moment, she couldn't quite understand why the ladies and gentlemen to her left and right, front and back, all shrieked as one and scattered. The doctor poked his head up from the pit into which he'd followed Tell his reddened hands testifying to the futility of his effort. Charlie, put the gun down, he yelled. Too late, for the cry had already gone up from deep within the stalls. Murderous! Don't be ridiculous. I just picked the wretched thing up. Murderous, cried another voice. And the fellow with the hair, that's her accomplice. At this moment, the outside doors burst in, omitting three burly plods who bundled through the crowd in the direction of the stage. The doctor made to clamber out of the pit, but a reedy little percussionist dragged him back down by his coattails. Charlie looked around desperately, wishing herself rid of the gun. Then a firm hand gripped hers from behind. And it was with a certain relief that she heard a strong, clear voice say, Perhaps I could look after that for you, miss. Please, just take the ghastly thing away. Charlie turned and found herself looking up at the most perfectly trimmed moustache. The man who the moustache belonged to, not too old, just ordinarily handsome, was already pocketing the pistol. 
That's quite all right, miss. No need for alarm, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a police officer. Oh, thank goodness. I hate to be dreary, but I'm afraid I'll have to arrest you now. You don't understand. It wasn't me. I know that, of course. The shot came from behind the both of us. Now, play along if you want to get out of this mess. There's a good girl. You're no policeman. Clear the way, please. I have the murderers. Wait, we can't leave the doctor. Charlie cast a glance back towards the pit, into which the three fat constables had descended. She couldn't see the doctor there, but she had reason to believe he was resisting arrest. Too late for him, my dear. Hurry, before anyone realises. The next thing Charlie knew, pretty much, it was morning, in an unfamiliar flat on an unfamiliar couch. Well, where the devil... Oh, will you stop it with the Rossini? Sorry, did I wake you? Didn't realise I was doing it. Think about that tune, once it's in your head... It's hard to get it out, I know. Well, it's your fault, miss. You were humming it in your sleep, best part of the night. Suppose I must have just picked it up, like I seem to have picked up... you. Excuse me, you've picked up no one, sir. Oh, Lord, I didn't mean... No, sorry. Don't you remember getting here from the music hall? Wherever here is, no. Just my little old bachelor flat in Portland Place. Look, that's a broadcasting house. And the little old bachelor is? Hilary Hammond. At your service. Charlotte Pollard. Actually, now I come to think of it, didn't we catch a taxi last night? You were asleep within seconds of climbing aboard, just about. Well, I'd been on my feet for a couple of days. Had you now? Well, I hoiked you up here and plonked you on the couch. I would have put you in the bedroom, but I didn't like to take a liberty. I should hope not. Hang about. Do you smell something burning? Oh, <gasps> scrambled eggs! Oh, Lord! Oh, look, don't worry about making me breakfast. I can't stay. I've got to find the doctor. Oh, they're ruined! Ruined! <laughs> All I've got left is a pair of kippers. Bit of a niff to them. I told you I have to go. I can't let you do that, miss. Get off me, Hilary! Sorry. The thing is, you're in the newspaper. What? Already? Here, let me show you. Not on the front page, of course. That's all about a load of smashed statues in Bloomsbury and the suicide of some sculptor called Ernst. Let me see. Stop press. Latest. There, at the bottom. Police were last night hunting two suspects wanted in connection with a shooting at Trump's Variety Hall. A young woman described as wearing a Russian military uniform fled the scene. An older man with shoulder-length hair later escaped custody. (laughs) Trust him to get away. Your doctor, you mean. What is it you do, the pair of you? Chase and get chased by aliens, mostly. What? Oh! That was a window! Sounded like the flat downstairs. What if it's the police? The police? Well, someone might have seen me bring you to this building. It could be a raid. All right, we'd best hurry. But we ought to get those clothes off you first. I beg your pardon? That's not taking a liberty. That's just being practical. They'll have men at the station looking for you. Have to find you a disguise. Why a station? What station? St Pancras, of course. For the Thames Clyde Express? The Thames Clyde Express? But that's Scotland. That's where your doctor will have gone to, chasing his aliens. He seemed the sort of chap who'll have worked it all out. Worked all what out? The straggly witch, of course. It's a bay on the west coast of Dumfrieshire. The key in the house of the straggly witch, I remember. It's colloquial. It's not on a map. Only maritime folk would know it, I think. Then how do you know it? I'm a shipping clerk, I'm afraid. Awfully dull, I know. Oh, it sounds like they're making a right old mess downstairs. Yes, it'll be us next. Hold on. I've an idea how to get you out. turned out, the chap in the next-door flat worked in the Admiralty, and since Hillary had a spare key, well, to cut a long story short, Charlie ended up leaving by the fire escape at the back of the block in a sailor's suit. But as she told Hillary on the Scotland train, she wasn't worried. I've had to pass as a boy before. Oh. When I first met the doctor, I was pretending to be a steward on an airship, the R101 as a matter of fact. The ship that crashed? 
I probably shouldn't have told you that. No, don't you worry. Mum's the word. I must say, you do seem a very adventurous sort, you and the Doctor in your travelling TARDIS. TARDIS. I shouldn't have told you that, either. Oh, look, here's Carlisle's Citadel coming up. You ought to get off, really. Oh, nonsense. I've stuck with you this far. I'll be damned if I don't see you through. I'm wanted for murder, Hillary. If they catch me, they'll hang me. And if they catch you helping me, you'll go to prison at the very least. Oh, I hadn't really thought. Oh, but it won't come to that. You saw the artist's impression the police were handing out at St Pancras and at Nottingham and at Leeds. Looked nothing like you. What you could see beneath the cavalry cap, anyhow. Well, the nose was all wrong, too. Yours is so much prettier. Hillary, if you followed me halfway across the country just because you're sweet on me, I'm afraid I'm oh, going to have hell. to disappoint. Oh, I knew it. Well, you've been very gallant. No, never mind all that now. Look! Charlie looked and saw half a dozen squaddies boarding the train, rifles on their shoulders. A man in a raincoat overlooked the scene, flanked by two policemen. He was showing a young lieutenant what appeared to be two sketches that she had no doubt were artist impressions of both herself and the doctor. They've caught the army in. Maybe someone at Leeds or at Nottingham raised their suspicions. Look here. Why don't you just kiss me? What? If we can keep your face hidden, they might leave us alone. Hilary, I'm dressed as a sailor. I thought you didn't want to go to prison. Look, sit tight. I'm going to the baggage van. Uh, what are you going to do? Hide in a mailbag all the way to Dumfries? Baggage, Hilary. I might find a change of clothes. As it turned out, the baggage van was pleasingly short of attendance. But other than several crates worth of gramophone records, disappointingly short of luggage containing suitable vestments. The first case Charlie opened must have belonged to a travelling salesman. The second, a boarding school boy. The third, it seemed, a maiden aunt. What's she doing with handcuffs? Just then, however, something else in the van caught Charlie's eye. Something six feet long and made of mahogany. A coffin? Some recently departed soul en route to their final resting place, she supposed. It'd be the perfect hiding place, she thought if it wasn't a perfectly horrid idea. But then, the lid was bound to be screwed down, wasn't it? She tried it anyway, just to be sure. To her surprise, it gave. Well, young lady, here's a dilemma. But as she weighed up the con of temporarily sharing someone else's casket against the pro of not being put permanently in one of her own, the lid shifted a fraction further. <gasps> A hand darted out from inside, shoving the lid clean off, before the enshrouded figure within sat bolt upright and, although muffled, said distinctly, Charlie, is that you? Reaching forward, Charlie tugged the sheet free of the head of... The Doctor, of course. I suppose I ought to be terribly surprised. You're not? he asked, disappointed. You're on your way to the straggly witch, that's obvious. Your method for evading the police patrols, that's not so obvious, I'll admit. A funeral director in Kentish Town owed me a favour, he said quite casually. Without acknowledging the fact that she was done up as a young Matalo, he continued. But it's not only the police I'm avoiding. You mean, the aliens? You've seen them? Last night, after the police had dragged me out of Trump's and bundled me into the back of their Black Mariah, well, I'd barely begun to weigh up my options when the van skidded to a halt, then tipped right over. An alien stopped it! The back window smashed, so I got out while I could, he explained. I glanced back, but all I could see was something long-limbed and stocky with flaming green eyes and an appetite for policemen, whistles, truncheons and all. Well, it was no use trying to get back to the TARDIS. The police were everywhere. But by this time, the tube had stopped running, so I took shelter in the tunnels. And here I am. How about you? Charlie explained the train of events that had led her to the, well, train. The doctor fretted. Trust no one, Charlie. Someone human shot Tell dead to protect some alien scheme. This is a fearful conspiracy. Shh. The soldiers are coming. That's awkward, the doctor mused. There's no room in my coffin for two. Well, you're all right, Jack. You get in, said the doctor. I've got a plan. He pulled open the double doors leading outside, the sudden blast of wind all but knocking him off his feet. Doctor, you'll be killed if you try to jump! 
If I jump onto land, undoubtedly. But if I've accurately gauged our progress since our last stop... Oh, and there it is! There what is? The bridge over the River Clyde. Charlie, I'll meet you on the border. Doctor, no! Fix your lid, they're coming. Charlie pulled over the lid of the coffin at exactly the moment the soldiers arrived, saw the doctor and paused to unsling their rifles. But by the time they had, he'd already jumped. She might have hoped that he'd survived the fall, were it not for the fact the train suddenly slowed and stopped, giving the soldiers more than enough time to aim their rifles and fire off round after round after round into the river. After what seemed like an age, the soldiers trooped away and the train chuffed back into motion. Stopping only to borrow a cream lace affair from the maiden aunt's case, not to mention a rather boxy, oversized hat to veil her face, Charlie made her way back to Hillary. She meant, of course, to have a good old cry on Hillary's shoulder. The doctor was surely dead after all. But on returning to the compartment, she found it occupied not only by Hillary, but also by a pair of tweedy ladies who'd boarded at Carlisle. She worked hard to blink back those tears. You mustn't be sad, my dear, beamed one of the new arrivals. Your friend here has told us all about your little adventure, and we think it's all absolutely thrilling. Thrilling, yes, echoed the other, not looking up from her knitting. Charlie cast a look at Hilary, but he was wearing only a silly grin. Are you ready, my dear? Our stop's coming up. You told them? Everything, yes. These two charming ladies would be only too glad to give us their help. The express stopped at Anan, and all four bustled out. So exciting, trilled the chattier of the two deers, making to fuss with the angle of Charlie's borrowed hat. Charlie trotted ahead, out of the station, where she was startled to see a horse and carriage waiting. John Smith, hailed the driver. Mr John Smith. John Smith? That's the name the doctor uses sometimes. He must have arranged it. Do you think so? Driver, do you know where you're going? The coach driver nodded. A gift horse, then. Let's not look him in the mouth, shall we? The old ladies and Hilary were still smiling beatifically when the coach arrived at a pretty little church in a pretty little village in the parish of... Gretna Green? Here we are at last, my dear. Isn't it marvellous? Hilary, might I have a word with you in private? Charlie had rather more than the one word to give Hilary, but he hurriedly explained, sotto voce, how the two old women had leapt to the conclusion that he and Charlie were sweethearts, eloping to be married under Scottish law without the need for parental consent. Well, I suppose an awful lot of John Smiths must get picked up from the border station to be brought here to the village. Still, it all worked out to our advantage, what? I can't marry you, Hilary, if that's what you're thinking. No, of course not. We'd have to have the bans published first. But... Oh, but who's this coming through the churchyard? A fussy little vicar appeared, calling out for a Smith, Mr. John Smith, and complaining that he'd been expecting them a good hour before. I wouldn't have normally conduct a service at dusk, but still, if you've brought your witnesses with you... The two old ladies beamed. Charlie opened her mouth, intending to explain, but realised she couldn't. Called feet, is it? sighed the churchman, peering at Charlie through milk-bottle spectacles. I'll give you five minutes to make up your minds. As the two old women followed him through the churchyard, Hilary turned to Charlie and said, Look here, Miss Pollard. Charlotte, I know this is absolutely mad, but think about it, will you? Whoever this pair the vicar's mistaken us for are, this Smith chap and his bride-to-be, it, it's safe to assume they're not coming. But the fact is, a marriage certificate... Well, that's the sort of document that could get us both off the hook with the police. We'd be two other people entirely. That was true enough, and what Hilary didn't know, but Charlie did, was that history had decreed that Charlotte Pollard should have died in France five years before, in the wreck of the R101. Perhaps, she thought, 
this was her way back to the world as Mrs. Charlotte Smith, devoted wife of probably not the man she'd have chosen, but a thoroughly decent sort all the same. She took Hilary's hands in hers, looked him in the eyes, and let him down as gently as she could. Well, he took it like an Englishman. Quite all right, I do understand. I say, would you mind if I just toddled off to be by myself for a while? As Hilary slunk off into the gathering gloom, Charlie couldn't help wondering if she'd not just made the worst mistake of her life. She sat herself down by a mossy sepulchre, intending to gather her thoughts, and became aware of a strange drumming noise. It wasn't in her head, however. There was a flash of something white overhead. What the devil? And a horse vaulted the churchyard wall like it was Beecher's Brook, coming to ground just a few short feet from where Charlie sat. Its rider looked at Charlie and boggled. Charlie boggled back. Doctor? Hello, Charlie, said the doctor, dismounting. Sorry, had to find alternative transportation from the border. You're alive! Well, yes, obviously, he replied, a touch peevishly. I can hold my breath, you know. Unfortunately, I seem to have attracted a number of pursuers. Come on, we can hide inside the church. Won't it be Evensong now? he asked. Look here, Doctor. I know this is going to sound absolutely mad, but the fact of the matter is, the vicar's expecting a Mr John Smith to walk through these doors any minute. He is? asked the Doctor, pulling open the vestry doors. There's a thing. That's my favourite alias. I know. And when you think about it, what we could really use right now is some sort of document to get us off the hook with the police. She pointed him down the aisle to where the vicar was waiting by the altar, squinting through his specs. The two old ladies stood beaming happily. Charlie, hissed the doctor, I think we've walked in on a wedding. Well, there you go. No one would think to look for us in here. Do come on, doctor. I don't think this is a very good idea, he began. I do. It's just that those two women, the witnesses, what about them? They were sat in the row behind us at the music hall. Charlie froze, looking at the two Tweedy ladies, who looked at the doctor, who looked at the two Tweedy ladies, who reached inside their handbags, producing Webley pistols. I told you, trust no one, said the doctor. Dearly beloved, began the vicar, oblivious. We are gathered here today to run! The doctor and Charlie bolted back down the aisle, bullets whizzing past their ears. Slamming the church door shut behind, they took off through the graveyard. Not that way! Not that way either, said the doctor. Far wall! They scrambled over the western boundary wall, where a Rover 14 in British racing green was waiting. Any hope that Charlie might have had that its occupants could be persuaded or gulled to come to her and the doctor's assistance at this most desperate hour drained away when the driver and his pock-faced passenger stepped out of the car, handguns pointed in their direction. Lugers, queried the doctor. Handerhock, shouted the spottier of the two, marching up. They're Germans? Enemy aliens, of course, groaned the doctor. How could I have been so... But his train of thought was cut brutally short when the spottier man pistol-whipped him into unconsciousness. Several hours later, Charlie watched the doctor come round, a few good slaps to the face having hastened his recovery. They shared, as they so often did, a slimy, low-ceilinged cell. 12th century brickwork, noted the doctor, and Charlie wasn't about to disagree. Well, we're not dead yet, that's something. Leaving the near certainty that their captors wouldn't leave this state of affairs unremedied for very much longer, hanging unspoken in the stale air. I doubt our captors will leave that state of affairs unremedied for very much longer, said the doctor, largely to fill the silence. I doubt that too, old chap. Said a smooth moustache through the bars of the cell door. Hillary! Your shipping clerk friend, asked the doctor. What's he doing here? All in due course, doctor. But it's a pleasure to meet you at last. 
Come along. I've something to show the pair of you. They were in a knockdown castle that guarded the nostril of the inlet, otherwise known as the Straggly Witch, explained Hillary, as he led them along the corridor, then down several flights of slippery steps onto a stone jetty. The jetty jutted out into a watery cavern. Beside it was a U-boat of Teutonic designation, of course. Unexpectedly, the doctor laughed, actually guffawed, in fact, which seemed a little off to Charlie, given the circumstances, and she jolly well said as much. But don't you see, he smiled, don't you remember what Mr. Tell told us? The secret key. Not K-E-Y, but Q-U-A-Y. To the hidden lock. L-O-C-H, not L-O-C-K. It seemed painfully obvious now. A cable lift, like a car in a coal mine, came to rest close by. A small horde of pug-faced men spilled out, lugging large wooden crates, some of which Charlie had seen in the baggage van of the Thames Clyde train. We've been talking at cross-purposes, have we not, Doctor? In the Variety Hall, we mistook you for a secret service man come to break up our little... well, spy ring, you'd have to call it. That was why I had to shoot Tell when he began to spill the beans. You shot Tell? Of course. Mr. William Tell was the key to how we exchanged information between our various agents. He was? That's why the football results were all wrong, said the doctor. Twenty-six named clubs, each corresponding to a letter of the alphabet. And the net change between each set of results reported by Tell... Corresponds to the number of places each letter should be moved to translate encoded messages, of course. The key changed weekly, so the enemy agents could post their communications by dead drop. What, so the music hall was full of your spies? Hiding in plain sight among the proles. <laughs> and it worked beautifully. So beautifully. Until you blundered in and made Tell expose the name of the place where our agents come ashore. So you're shipping out? Hillary's henchmen struggled out of the lift with a particularly large and unwieldy crate. No option. We'll be back. Once we've secured our people and given them new identities. But what for, Hillary? Why betray your country? Don't you read the newspapers, Miss Pollard? There's a war coming. There'll be an invasion. Not today, not tomorrow, but one day there will. And when that day comes, well... Hillary Hammond means to be in prime position at the top of the heap. Oh, and to think I even consider... Marrying me? Don't flatter yourself. It was the thought of acquiring myself a new identity that appealed. As a widower, of course, the new Mrs. Smith would have met with a tragic accident of some description. Perhaps the morning after our wedding night? Why, you despicable hound! She made to slap his face, which was the very least the traitor deserved, but he was ready with a pistol in his hand. The same pistol that had fired the bullet that murdered Tell. I don't think so, sweet Charlotte. Now, Doctor, since I presume you don't actually want Miss Pollard to meet with that untimely end I mentioned, tell me all about this. Hillary pointed to that especially unwieldy crate, now stood up on its end. He clicked his fingers, whereupon two of his goons lifted off its cover to reveal... The TARDIS! Well, don't look so surprised. You told me all about it. Normally, of course, I'd have dismissed your tale as the ravings of some inmate of the Free and Barnet Hospital. But, you see, it chimed, rather, with my recall of a rather queer radio transmission we intercepted early yesterday evening. Hillary clicked his fingers again, and another of the goons extracted a shellac disc from one of the smaller crates, placing it on a gramophone player set up to one side. I chose Portland Place to live in for a reason, of course. To tap radio transmissions in and out of London using the BBC's antenna, groaned the Doctor. The disc selected crackled into life, and once again Charlie heard that matey, slightly showy-offy voice begin to say, Hello there, Doctor. This is the Doctor speaking. Now, the fact of the matter is, you've caught me in a bit of a jam. A fix, you might say. A tight spot, quite frankly. I can't go into too much detail, because any second now there'll be a blanket of etheric fuzz come down. Hang about, we didn't hear this bit before. The TARDIS's systems are digital, explained the Doctor, but this is an analogue recording without data corruption. Now shh! The fuzz is the problem, you see. I'm trying to send out messages to lots of my earlier selves, only 
space location. A mothership using radio waves to coordinate an attack. Now, I've tapped into their chatter, and it seems like they'll be using a performance of the William Tell Overture. You know, Rossini. da da dum da dum da dum 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 I was right! That's the signal to begin the invasion. Not sure when exactly. You'll have to look it up in the Radio Times. But it's tomorrow night, whenever your tomorrow is. Remember, William Tell. William Tell is the key to it all. William Tell. Good luck and watch out for those enemy aliens. There. Aliens there. It's true. You, Doctor. You are some sort of alien. Never mind that. Weren't you listening, Hammond? There's an invasion about to happen, and we have to stop it. If it is true, then some sort of panic on the streets of London or wherever, Dublin, Dundee, Humberside, would suit my masters well. All I care about is taking my prize back to Berlin. So, Doctor, show me how to operate your time and space machine, or must I place an apple on top of dear Charlie's head and use my pistol to reenact the legend of Wilhelm Tell? Hillary reached into the other pocket of his coat and brought out the most menacing Cox's orange Charlie had ever seen. The doctor's mind was elsewhere, distracted by the most peculiar noise from far above. Shh, shh, shh. Did you hear that? He asked. I heard nothing. Now show me! What on earth was that? That, Charlie, said the doctor, was the unmistakable whiz-bang of a British army mortar targeting the ruins of the castle above. That's impossible. Not really, said the doctor. You see, I've been looking around your circle of spies, and nowhere can I see two pistol-packing old ladies in Harris Tweed two-pieces. The women on the train, you mean? Who were at the music hall too, which means... Yes, Miss Pollard, said the doctor. My best guess is they were Secret Service agents. They were onto your Mr. Hammond's ring of spies all along, and we all led them here, straight to his Scottish hideaway. Unsurprisingly, Hillary looked distinctly alarmed. He hollered over to his goons. We are under attack! We have to evacuate! Evacuate now! You! Kill the commandant to prepare to die! But he never completed the order since at that point a rather large chunk of the roof of the cavern came crashing down, just inches from his treacherous head. Quick, Doctor, now's our chance! And when he looked up... No! Stop them! It was already too late. Hell and damnation! They've gone! Some 13 hours later, the TARDIS materialized just behind All Souls Church, whose spire dwarfed even the radio mast of the still new broadcasting house. The Doctor and Charlie barreled out into the road, Charlie reading from a copy of the Radio Times. Twenty hundred hours, music box. Mr. Vladimir Shailovsky, brackets pianoforte, plays popular selections from Chopin, Debussy and Rossini. Ha! Hang about. Hasn't Big Ben got awfully close? They air Big Ben's chimes through loudspeakers at the top of Broadcasting House, explained the Doctor. I bet that annoys the neighbours. It's twenty hundred hours already! No point in getting here sooner, they'd only have found a replacement, said the Doctor, dragging Charlie across the road. Replacement for what? Replacement pianist. Mr Shilovsky, you said? Why, what are you going to do to him? Stop him playing, insisted the doctor. At least long enough to prevent the invasion from beginning at the proper time. What programme is he on? Charlie looked again at the Radio Times. Not the usual. The Empire Service. The Empire Service? gasped the doctor. Charlie, that transmission's going out to all points of the globe. You mean it's a worldwide attack? Different time zones, of course, he exclaimed. That's why they need the broadcast, to synchronise their assault. He was interrupted first by a distant crashing of glass, then by the most inhuman shriek. Surely that wasn't... That's what the alien I met sounded like, confirmed the doctor, remembering his escape from the police van the previous night. It came from... over there. That's Portland Place. Where Hillary lives, 
Something long-limbed and stocky with flaming green eyes came swinging from lamppost to lamppost, then dropped itself directly in their path. It shuddered towards Charlie, inhaled heavily through noseless nostrils, slathered a bit and, well, purred. Charlie, I think it likes you, said the doctor. Why is it that I seem to attract quite the wrong sort? Attract, realised the doctor. Charlie, that's it. You've been attracting it ever since last night. But I wasn't even wearing perfume. Well, not unless you count the scent of Hussar. It's following your scent now, that's for sure, reasoned the doctor. It must have picked up you on me. That's why it went after the Black Mariah. Then, when it didn't find you, it followed your true trail to Portland Place. In a flash, Charlie recalled that someone, or as it now seemed, something, had broken into the flat below Hillary's shortly before they'd left. What she didn't know was that the creature had spent the last 36 hours nuzzling the Russian cavalry officer's cap that had dropped from her head outside the window of that downstairs flat when Hillary was hauling her inside the block. Why me? What's so special about me? You activated it, realised the doctor. It's a sentry, a sleeper, an advance guard, and you woke it up. How? By humming Rossini, shouted the doctor triumphantly. Try it. <laughs> the alien pricked up its stubby ears attentively. See, said the doctor. It thinks you're its superior officer, its commander-in-chief. It wants you to lead the way. The BBC commissionaire on duty was used to seeing off all manner of riffraff, most often actors in search of work, which was what he took the Doctor and Charlie for, of course, the moment they stepped inside the lobby of Broadcasting House. The creature that followed them in was harder to account for. That's the Debussy. We don't have much time. Um, good evening, Mr. Commissioner. I was hoping you might be able to tell me where Mr. Shylovsky is playing. To his credit, the Commissioner managed to squeak, Eight Floor Studio, before fainting dead away. In studio, the Muscovite maestro came to the end of his second selection, flexing his fingers as he prepared to begin the famous overture from Signor Rossini's opera, William Tell. Stop, Mr. Shailovsky! For the sake of all humanity, I implore you, stop! Mr. Shailovsky passed out in an instant too. Well, that, I think, qualifies as the very nick of time. The alien stomped away, shrieking at the technicians cowering behind the glass of the control booth overlooking the studio. What's that noise? Oh no, said the doctor. He dashed out of the studio, nose rattling from his lips as he made his way to the windows overlooking the roof, Charlie at his heels. He pointed out to her a spot above the radio mast where a huge saucer-like shape was resolving itself as if from a cloud. Just those few notes were enough, explained the doctor. The mothership's uncloaking itself, becoming tangible. We're too late. The invasion's begun. Indeed, nodded the doctor. I dare say they'll start up with the laser beams at any moment. Why, what are they going to do? Raise London to the ground to ensure worldwide capitulation, I expect, he countered. Your what's-its going off? You know, in your pocket. My wave disturbance locator! exclaimed the doctor, pulling out the device. Charlie, Charlie, Charlie! Do you know what this means? She took a wild stab. That there's a spot of wave disturbance around and about? The etheric fuzz which was clouding the ship, it's gone, he babbled. So now it's been lifted, I can send them a signal. The doctor dashed back to the studio and settled down in front of the microphone. Ladies, gentlemen, enemy aliens... We apologise for the temporary loss of Signor Rossini. In the meantime, for those who appreciate something more modern, a little light wave disturbance. He held the device right up to the mic and twisted its dial to the farthest extent. 
Charlie clasped her hands to her ears, which were ringing like the bells of St Paul's and St Mark's were being bashed together in her head. Doctor! That hurts! That isn't hurts, he hollered back. It's terror hurts! 20,000 terahertz or thereabouts being transmitted straight to the mothership above. There, that's enough, he said, switching off his what's-it. Come on, Charlie, to the roof. Let's see if they got the message. Quickly, they made their way up to the foot of the mast, the doctor gabbling about how any alien species attempting to invade the Earth in this era would have expected to find easy meat, not a species technically adept enough to fire 20,000 terahertz of wave disturbance right back at their receptors. But the ship thingy's still there. Not for much longer, said the doctor, because if I were me, and I am, are you talking about your other self again? Like I said, Miss Pollard, if I can send the aliens a message now, my other self can too. Indeed, at that very moment, aboard not just the mothership, but every vessel in the aliens' fleet, the voice of the other doctor was busy informing the invaders that, as they could hear, the planet Earth was protected by higher powers even than themselves. Go on, get out of it, he urged. If you know what's good for you, that is. Up on the roof, Charlie watched the mothership flash purple and white, then purple again. Then quite suddenly, it was gone. Back to whatever third division galaxy they came from, smirked the doctor. Time Lords United 2, enemy aliens nil. We'll have to call it a no-score draw, I'm afraid. Hillary, what are you doing here? My new chums in the Secret Service threw me back from Scotland, of course. You what? The fact is, I've agreed to be turned, to act as a double agent spreading disinformation to my former masters on behalf of the British. But for the scheme to work, anyone who knew about my little old ring of spies, they're enemies of England now. And well, you told me where and when I could find you, so... With a flourish, he brought out the same pistol he'd used to kill Tell. Now I don't want to shoot you. Really, I don't. But we're eight floors up. That's awfully high. Charlotte, my dear, I suggest you jump. It'd be less painful. For me, I mean. I've only one thing to say to you, Hilary Hammond. Which is? Stop that. Stop it. You impudent hussy. You stop that at Oh, my lord. What? Hello there. This here's Hilary Hammond. He's a treacherous hound, and he wants to kill your commander-in-chief, so... No! No! The back! The monster lowered its head, charged towards Hilary, and in an instant... No, wait! Get back, I said! Both of those monsters had gone over the edge. After a moment, the doctor turned round and looked down on the street below. Come and see, Charlie, he beckoned. She made a face. I'd sooner not. No, really, come and see. So she looked and saw a long-limbed shape laying quite still on the pavement far below. But where was Hilary, she wondered. Miss Pollard! Charlie! Could you help me, please? Hilary Hammond, she saw, was clinging by the tips of his treacherous fingers to the longhand of the Art Deco clock at the front of Broadcasting House. The longhand that stood at 26 minutes past eight, ticking down towards the vertical half hour. Not sure I can... Hold on, actually. Doctor, Charlie, help me, please. Well, Charlie, asked the doctor, should we help him or should we let him hang? Do you know, Doctor, I'm not sure. I might need a minute to think about that. The clock hand fell another stroke. Please, I beg you! Two minutes, even. Doctor Who Enemy Aliens by Alan Barnes was performed by India Fisher with Michael Maloney as Hilary Hammond and is a big finish production for Audio Go.